Hey everyone, Zach Dixon here, and welcome to our 53rd episode of Animalators, curious conversations from the world of animation. Today on the show, we have Alex Grendling, co-founder of the creative studio Lunar Saloon. Alex started his design career at Interlink, a design studio primarily focused on film advertising and movie posters. Uh, he spent some time working at Google during their whole recent rebrand, uh, kind of the material design era, and has since started his own studio called Lunar Saloon, working with clients like Dropbox, IGN, Tumblr, Facebook, and Uber, just to name a few. Today on the show, we'll talk about self-initiated projects, creating your own products, and his many adventures on Kickstarter. We'll also talk about his regular creative streams that he does on Twitch, and we'll get into Alex's philosophy when it comes to working and communicating with clients. I'm excited to get into all of this and more on this week's episode of Animalators. Alex, thanks so much for coming on Animalators. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, so you you have you've done a lot so far in in your career. You've worked on movie posters at at Interlink. You worked at Google. You started your own studio, but let's start at the now. Tell us what is Lunar Saloon. So Lunar Saloon is a creative studio that I started with my wife Meg Grinling, and we work I think primarily at this point with video game clients. I don't know how that happened. It just kind of happens. Um, and it's, we don't do a lot of work on games, except on your game, Bouncy Smash, which we worked with you on. But we do a lot of work on like the periphery, like around the games. So whether that's like making illustrations for Game Informer covers or designing IGN's uh, E3 booth for a couple years now. And you know, now we're doing like more branding stuff for game developers. So I guess this just happened because I like games and have never hidden that. And, uh, you know, I think that within the game world, there's very few prominent designers working. And, you know, like Corey, Corey Schmitz is a friend of ours um, who does amazing branding work. He's done a ton of studio identities and game identities. And, you know, Corey has been generous enough over the years to send work our way that he can't tackle. And so that certainly helped get into that industry. I handle the creative side of Lunar Saloon um, and Megs handles the business side, which I am garbage at. And so Megs is great for that reason. Um, and many other reasons and many other <laughs> reasons. And uh, so, yeah. So is that is going after um, work in the game industry something that you'd kind of planned or just kind of happened? A little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. <laughs> I think like I'd made a, I made a lot of work over the years of, you know, I, I guess some people label fan art, which I think can be used like very dismissively. Um, but I think everything is fan like. Unless you're George Lucas, <laughs> if you are making something Star Wars related, you are making fan, fan art. art yeah. Like, I think, you know, The Force Awakens was a great piece of fan art by J.J. <laughs> Abel. Like, uh, <laughs> but so I made a lot of fan art over the years for video game stuff. And I think that it just got in front of, you know, the people at the companies. Like, you know, if I was making portal stuff, like people at Valve saw it and you know, they send it to their friends in the industry and it's just kind of how it happened. It just happened like very organically. Like I don't think it was any concerted effort other than me making conscious decisions 
about what I was going to make stuff about. Like maybe if I was like really big in the like medical supplies and I've made a lot of cool, like medical supply fan art, <laughs> then that's what I would be doing right now. Who knows? I don't know. <laughs> well, and I think you, you also kind of spoke it into existence as well. Like, you know, we were looking for partners on bouncy smash as we were making this game. And like, I don't know I think I followed you on Twitter and dribble and like, I loved your art, but then I also like, I feel like I literally saw you tweet, like I'd love to work on more video game stuff. And I was like, yes. Oh yeah. He might be, he might actually enjoy this. This would be fun. And then I, you know, reached out and yeah, it worked out. It worked out. I had talked with a group of students and someone was bringing up the concept of like cold emails. Oh, um, yeah. like, first there were cold calls. Then there were cold emails. Um, and now there's what I like to think of as cold tweeting, which is <laughs> you just tweet the shit that you want to make. Oh, can I cuss? Oh, yeah, yeah it's I fine. Can't, I yeah. can't remember if other people have cussed on this or not. Okay, so just tweet tweet the things that I want to make and see if it comes back. You know, in your case, it did, which was great. Like if I had never put that out there, no one would have known. <laughs> so, yeah, it's nice. Well, I feel like you also spend a lot of your time kind of just making what you want, which I feel like not everybody either makes time for that or is able to make time for that. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I think so. You know, an average work week at Lunar Saloon um, is really pretty, pretty minimal as far as client work goes, like, you know, maybe two or three days total working on client work. And so that leaves me with time to fill either, you know, we don't have any clients or I'm waiting on feedback from clients or we're waiting on clients to sign a contract. You know, it's, there's all sorts of like just moments where I have downtime and my dad was a designer uh, or is a designer in Kentucky. And so he owned his own business uh, all throughout my childhood, you know? And so I think that I just got used to the idea that even if you don't have client work, you should be working because it's the work day. Like it's nine to five. Like you should be doing something because <laughs> yeah. everyone everywhere else is doing something. Um, so over the years, I just fill that time with projects that, you know, I want to do, or if I like, you know, over this past summer taught myself, after effects, which was great and kind of like a nice, like, I don't know, just like a renewed sense of creativity from learning after effects and having a new batch of tools at my disposal to make the things that I wanted to make. And so, yeah, a lot of it, a lot of the time that I spend not working on client projects is dedicated to either me honing some particular skill set that I want to um, learning some new program, um, kind of always making efforts to open up more doors for client work when that time comes. And you've, you've even put some of that time into some products as well. And you, you've done some Kickstarters, um, which we have, you know, we, we've got some, some wonderful sci-fi playing cards, um, <laughs> yeah. spread, spread all across our office. And, uh, yeah. So could you talk a little bit about your kind of Kickstarter and, uh, self-initiated, uh, products adventures? Yeah. Oh boy. And they have been adventures. Um, so Star Deck was the first big one. That was kind of when Lunar Saloon was first launching and we said, we should have some like big thing to like make this a splash. Like, 
Lunar Saloon is launching. And by the way, we're making this crazy deck of sci-fi playing cards. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so that was on Kickstarter, and that was successful, and that was good. Um, I'd used Kickstarter before for myself in the past, like making a, um, a time travel calendar that took time travel from like movies and TV shows and video games and comics and put all of them on a single timeline. So you like see like, Oh, when Marty McFly goes back to 1955, the Terminator is showing up to kill Sarah Connor. And you find like weird little, you know, alignments. So we had used Kickstarter before. So we use it again for the star deck. Um, And since then we've made, you know, a few smaller products like, we made a uh, pin that was like a little like raised fist. Uh, we donated all of the profits from that to the ACLU. And, you know, we're making more pins because I think pins are the only things that people are interested in buying right now. <laughs> I don't like I am like, you know, a 50 year old learning about like dabbing like five years after dabbing was a thing. But um we're doing that. We did, you know, Astro Alphabet, uh, which was a set of educational flashcards for children that taught about, you know, it was like Q is for Quasar, A is for astronaut, B is for black hole, and trying to make these big ideas, like shrink them down to where they are understandable to a child. And, you know, it starts with the kid. The front of the cards has like an illustration and the word and the letter. So they learn their letters. And then as they grow up on the backs of the cards, it has like three different facts about whatever is on the front and the definition for it. Uh, The idea being that the cards kind of grow with the kids. um, So they're useful beyond when they're just learning their alphabet and, you know, it's useful for early readers and stuff like that. All this did not happen <laughs> because that Kickstarter was not successful. Um, and so since then, we've been kind of trying to figure out what to do with that. Because, I mean, most of the work is done at this point. Like, I designed and illustrated a majority of these cards. And so now it's figuring out, you know, do we partner with a publisher? Do we just get smaller print runs done? You know, because we needed, like, after Kickstarter fees and all this other stuff, we needed like 26,000 to make this happen. And people after the thing were like, so when can we expect them? And it's like, (laughs) yo, the Kickstarter wasn't successful. We were asking for 26 grand because we do not have that money. (laughs) How this whole thing works. So it's going to be a while. Um, And so we don't know, you know, whether we're going to, like print a smaller run and just sell it independently. But you know, it's, it's the kind of product. It was, it was a really hard thing to see fail because I still really believe in it. And it's insane to me that there aren't more products like that aimed at kids to teach them about space. Like, especially in a time where science education is so underfunded by our government and, you know, all of this. And Astro Alphabet was kind of my response to that. It was looking at, you know, current trends, educational trends and going, all right, well, if you're not going to teach kids about science, I'm going to teach kids about science and 
Kickstarter said, no, you're not going to teach kids about science. <laughs> so <laughs> we, we're, we're, we're going to figure it out. Um, because I still believe in Astro Alphabet. Yeah. I mean, it's an incredible project and we were all very excited about it too. And very sad to see it fail the Kickstarter, but is there anything that like you took away from that or, or maybe would think about doing something differently? Like, you know, if you could go back and do something or, or are you just going to keep, keep running with it? I don't know. Like Megs and I spent a lot of time kind of, um, like, you know, in a prolonged postmortem of, Ast- of Astro Alphabet going, what could we have done? And I don't know that we learned anything <laughs> because the <laughs> thing is, is, we did so much that was supposed to be the right thing to do. Like we emailed tons of blogs. We got in touch with podcasts that specialize in Kickstarter campaigns. You know, Kickstarter featured us as a project they love. It was like all of these things that were supposed to lead to success did not lead to success. You know, I mean, Meg's God, poor Meg. She wrote like hundreds of blogs, literally hundreds of blogs. And I feel like maybe like nine wrote about it. So, you know, we just like couldn't get people to uh, share it, you know, on Twitter and stuff. Um, You know, it's the kind of thing where you spend like months working on something and you just really have to twist people's arm to get them to care. And you spend like five minutes making a stupid gif and everyone's like, (laughs) oh, I'm going to share it with everybody. Uh, So... Without going getting too pessimistic and cynical here, I think that we learn not to overestimate Twitter's use or like ability to help us help us succeed in the ways that we want to, I guess. Like I think we relied on our followings too much um, going into Astro Alphabet um, and other people's willingness to write about it. And I don't know what the solution to that is. But it's good to know, like, you know, next time we do something like, well, we're not going to do the same thing we did last time because it didn't work. So, you know, and I think it's it's tough to like, there's so many bad things happening in our country right now. This is really hard to get people's attention, like, understandably so, like, because there are much bigger problems than kids not learning about space. Right. Like, and so I kind of I get it. It's a huge bummer, <laughs> but I all, I get it. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that answered your question or if I just started talking. <laughs> well, no, no, no. But I feel like it. It's almost a testament to like one. It's just really hard to get people to care about stuff. But I think in that sense, it makes the times where like you have created so many things that people actually do care about and paid money for and paid attention to like all that more incredible and special. Cause you realize like, Oh my, like this is a very, very hard thing. Like right. just getting anyone to care about these things. And you've done that like so many times, which I think is incredible. Thank you. I, I think, yeah. So th- I mean, that's a good thing to take away from Astro Alphabet is to appreciate the, the moments where I was successful in capturing a larger audience's attention. Um, and to not take those for granted. Like, I think I kind of took that for granted with Stardeck. Because, you know, and then after Astro Alphabet, looking back, it's like, oh, man. Like, we've had, like, you know, thousands. Because we've sold um, Stardeck to wholesale, to sites that specialize in playing cards, to a few game stores around Minneapolis. You know, it's like, oh, they're 
there are actually thousands of people that wanted a deck of sci-fi playing cards. How <laughs> cool is that? Like, yeah. <laughs> that's a cool thing. Um, so yeah, it has taught me to be more appreciative of those moments, products that really spoke to people, I think. Yeah. Okay, so I'd like to talk a little bit about the why behind starting Lunar Saloon, but I feel like in order to do that, we need a little bit of context. So let's let's take it back. Let's let's go back and and tell me about your time at Interlink. Um, and so for those for people who don't know, what is Interlink? So Interlink was a it was because it is unfortunately no more. Um, Interlink was a uh, design studio in LA that specialized in key art for film and theatrical advertising. So movie posters, billboards, um, they did a lot of trailers, uh, you know, even like title sequences to movies. Uh, and they'd been around since the seventies, I think. So, you know, they did, they've done work that you recognize like the Blade Runner poster, uh, apocalypse now, Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, you know, a bunch of stuff. And That's crazy. Yeah. So, so let's see. That was me telling you about Interlink. <laughs> now, so you, you interned there, right? Yeah. So I interned there uh, in the summer before my final semester of college. That's an impressive internship. Was that like something you had, like, was that difficult to land? Was that something that you had like dreamed of for a while? Uh, kind of. Um, and it was made possible because we had a family friend um, Kelly Carlton, who was the creative director in their motion graphics department. And Kelly got me into the internship. And then the internship was actually canceled oh, no. um, like a week before I was supposed to fly out to L.A. And I later found out the re- and I, I can talk about this now because it's like 10 years ago. The reason that it was canceled was because. I, my understanding was that a, a former intern of theirs had leaked the movie 300. No and way. So the head of the company was like, we're not going to have any more interns. Are you crazy? <laughs> like, like the internships are dead. Like cancel all the interns. So I remember that. Like, I remember like Tom Spazito being like, they leaked the movie 300. We're going to watch it. <laughs> yep. And Yep, <laughs> that. So your jubilation resulted in my misery, uh, <laughs> right, right before then. Um, and then uh, Kelly talked to the owner Anthony Goldschmidt, who also um, founded the company, and convinced Anthony to let me come out there still and complete my internship. Uh, and so I got a call like 13 hours before my flight to LA. I was like, "Hey, it's back on." <laughs> so. Glad I didn't cancel that plane ride. Yeah. And so I did the internship and it was a lot of, you know, intern tasks, tidy up this bookshelf, take this here, take this there. But in between that, when I wasn't in the same way that now I work on my own stuff when I'm not doing client work, um, whenever I wasn't doing those menial tasks, I was like, well, they're making stuff for nip tuck. I'm going to make something for Nip Tuck. Uh, they're making, you know, something for the Dark Knight. I'm going to make something for the Dark Knight. And it got to the point over the couple months where the creative director, uh, Mark Crawford, would include some of my comps in with everyone else's. Um, oh, wow. Which was That's really cool. amazing as a college student. Like, oh, yeah. Talk about, like, bolstering your confidence. Like, 
my work's in here with like the guy that made this poster, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so that was cool. And, and ultimately I made a poster for death sentence, which was a James Wan film starring Kevin Bacon. And it was supposed to be a Comic-Con exclusive poster and they picked it for Comic-Con and then liked it so much that they used it for the larger theatrical release. And so that is what netted me a job, I think, yeah. after school. And I went back. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, what a crazy thing. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and so, yeah, I worked there for two years and did, you know, a lot of the billing blocks. So the thing at the bottom of a movie poster that has all of the credits uh, is called the billing block. And there are all sorts of insane legal rules stipulating that thing's size, um, the typography of it, the order of everyone, all this stuff. And so one of my jobs was to make that billing block. So like, if you've seen the Dark Knight posters, guess who did that billing block? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it was a lot of stuff like that in addition to actually making posters. And I was right out of college, so I was extremely slow. Like I was making, you know, two or three posters in the time that these these guys were making like seven or eight, seven or eight posters in a couple of weeks for a movie. And yeah, that was it was long hours and I would not do it now, but I'm so glad that I did it when I did. That's always been something like just the the speed at which and you just hear about how many like pitches like go into winning a specific poster um, and like. You'd never realize that, you know, there were probably like 20 comps of that Dark Knight poster or something across oh. maybe many studios. <laughs> so I I can tell you from our, just from our experience, you keep in mind these studios like Warner Brothers double or triple vins these posters out. So we're working on it. BLT's working on it. Some other agencies working on it. And just in our comp book, we finished... Uh, or got printed, we got five Dark Knight posters printed because they had like a massive campaign. And in the comp book, we had over 500 comps <laughs> um, for those five posters. And, you know, you keep in mind, like a lot of those are iterations on an idea. But I would say like probably like 200 of them at least were original one-offs that didn't go any further than the round that they were presented. So you think about that, that was just our contribution to this effort. And there were two or three other agencies doing the exact same thing. It's insane. Then it's amazing to me, like sometimes what, what comes out and what is chosen out of like all of those 200 different comps for some of these, like, like hundred million dollar movies. It blows my mind a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think that, you know, I still talk a lot with, uh, my good friend, Brandon Schaefer, who, um, works as creative director at jump cut and, uh, they do trailers and Brandon specializes in movie posters. And so he and I talk about this industry a lot. And I think the thing that, you know, we get frustrated in seeing people, I'm not going to speak too much for Brandon here. I get frustrated when I see people saying, why are movie posters so safe? They're all so boring. It's the same thing over and over again. And while I think that's a perfectly valid critique, I think the thing that most people don't consider is that 
there are still real people investing millions of real dollars into these movies. So given the choice of trying something cool and edgy, like a cool Mondo poster, or doing something that has proven results and is safer and is going to more quickly communicate what that movie is to people, they're going to choose the safer option when they've invested like tens of millions of dollars into the movie, who can really blame them? Yeah. <laughs> like, oh yeah. Uh, you know, like that's a lot of pressure. And so I, I, I think that's an important part of the industry that a lot of people don't consider. Yeah. Well, and I feel like when you're making something for a general audience, I feel like it's easy to like take a dump on like, you know, Marvel movies or something like that, that just feels so like dumbed down for a, you know, a, a large audience, but it's like the only way that those movies are going to get made is if they're going to make back, you know, potentially a hundred million dollars. Right. And the only way to do that is to make something that a lot of people are going to like. And I don't think that there is anything harder than that. Yeah, totally. Like in, in some ways, in some ways, I mean, you think about like the pressure that you and I feel in our creative work. Oh yeah. And the stakes are like not even comparable. <laughs> no, no, not even, not <laughs> even close. Not even com- <laughs> like not even like it's a whole different. It's not even two different sports. It's like further apart <laughs> than that. Like, and so, and I think that you know, not that I'm like going to sit here and be like be empathetic to the billion dollar film industry, but you know, I I think that you know it's important to remember that there are real people that are being held accountable for their decisions in the same way that you and I are. And, you know, Mondo can make great posters because Mondo posters don't have to sell a new movie to a new audience. Like, yeah, they literally just have to sell 300 posters. Yeah. They sell 300 posters to a film that already has millions of fans. You have a lot more creative freedom in doing something like that than you do selling a new property or, you know, whatever. And so a lot of people draw comparisons between those two, and there's really no comparison to be drawn. It's a different thing. Well, let's talk about that for a second. You mentioned creative freedom, and I feel like a lot of times our goals, right, when you set out in a career as a creative professional, a lot of your goals are, at least mine were, driven towards like, I want to work with companies like Netflix and Google and Amazon and and these like kind of big companies that like seem to be putting out the coolest work um, and have big budgets and and, just be a lot of fun. But then when you get there, I think sometimes because they're so big and because they have, I don't know, there's there's just a lot going on and a lot of cooks in the kitchen. It, it, It can be a bit of a different animal, I think, than we maybe thought it was looking in on it. And I think you might have a, a, even better perspective than most because you actually spend some time at Google. Yeah. Um, and so I was working in Minneapolis and Google reached out to me and said, we're putting together a team to kind of audit and revitalize Google's visual language. And, you know, long story short, spoiler alert, our efforts led to like material design and kind of where the design at Google is now. But we were a small six-person team. And bringing it back to creative freedom, I think it's best, like we were an in-house design team. And I think it's best to think about our position as freelancers within Google. Like, So (laughs) we didn't belong to any particular team. We 
you know, weren't on the search team. We weren't on the maps team. Um, we were just kind of this like free floating thing um, in this big corporation. So we were afforded the time to make what we wanted to make and to, to say, this is what I think Google should look like. This is what I think the illustrations should look like. The logos should look like the user interface icons. But after we decided that we then had to sell it to all the different teams at Google of which there are many. (laughs) Um, And so like while we had like an initial amount of creative freedom, a lot of it from then was kind of like walking it back and figuring out compromises. And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a hard thing to talk about just because there's, there's so many moving pieces in that effort and continue yeah. to be. No doubt. I mean, but you're talking about a brand that is literally going to be seen and used by at least a billion people. Yeah. Like, yeah. Which is insane. Don't mess like, it up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that was the weird thing about working at Google and, well, because it's a good thing, the movie posters, and those are seen by a lot of people, but there's no metric tracking people's eyeballs to say there were, you know, 200,000 eyeballs looking at this thing. And the thing that blew my mind about working at Google is I would make like, okay, so something that I've made that a lot of people have interacted with is when sometimes Google's like, hey, you should, you know, put two factor authentication into this thing. And someone can steal your account. And there's a ridiculous illustration of a guy with a bandana that's hacking a computer. And I don't know why a hacker would wear a bandana, but that's the visual <laughs> motif that I chose. And I have to live with it to this day. But um, but something like that, like you think, oh, this is just like a little illustration. And then you look at the numbers and it's like, oh. 700,000 people looked at that thing, huh? I thought that was supposed to just be a little illustration. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, those metrics kind of blew my mind there. I'm really proud of the work that we did in our time. We ended, you know, after two years came out with like a style guide that was, I don't know, like 200 pages long. We'll just say 200 pages. Wow. Um, And our team kind of split things up. We divvied it up. So, Um, We had a guy, Roger Odone, who is um, a Brazilian designer that moved to the U.S. to work at Google. And I think he's still at Uber. He's he he kind of headed up Uber's rebranding a while back. Oh, cool. Roger is an amazing identity designer. And so we left it to Roger to do, um, you know, figure out the typography the relationships of the product icons with the type and all of that stuff. Cause he really enjoyed that aspect of a brand. And I really enjoyed, like I made a, a font, a pixel perfect font that was legible at five pixels tall um, for all us to use on little badges and stuff that were appended to product logos. Um, and, you know, and I worked a lot on the illustration side of it and, uh, so we kind of divvied it up like that and, you know, cause tailored it, you know, so that everyone's strengths on the team were represented really well. And I think that that led to, you know, I think you can still see that guideline on Behance somewhere. I think Roger, if you can find Roger's account, um, he has it uploaded on there, but yeah, it was, it was a lot of work and, you know, a lot of compromises were made along the way. Because it turns out you don't have total creative freedom when you're in-house either. (laughs) Uh, But I think it resulted in something really great. I think that 
what you just described is a very challenging part of the design process, which I don't think we talk about very often, which is getting people to come on board with what you're making a lot of, you know, either that, whether that's a, a client or like just your in-house team or your boss. Yeah. It's, I mean, and that's something that I think you have to learn as a skill. Yeah, totally. Like it's making, making the work is the easy part. <laughs> Getting other people on board with the work is like where the real challenge comes in. And I think that's where a lot of design education fails designers and they are so focused on making the work and not to do focus on making the work and, you know, not what they should be doing before the work is made or after the work is made or, you know, like how do you set up a contract? How do you, what's a good client designer relationship look like? How do you bill for that work? How do you respond to feedback? How, you know, do you keep a project from going into iteration hell? Like, so yeah. So when you consider all of that, Design is a very small part of being a designer. Um, yeah, and I, I we talked a little bit about, you know, I, I teach a post-baccalaureate class um, on design at MCAD here in Minneapolis. Like teaching that class over the past two years has really reframed the way that I handle my interactions with clients Um and viewing it less as of, of an us versus them and saying, okay, I know a lot about design. Like, this is what I've been doing for a long time. They don't know a lot about design. Why would they? No, no normal person should. So that's fine. Uh, and in the same way, they know a lot about their product. I don't know anything about their product. Like I, I can't come into the process and spend two weeks with them and assume that I know even a fraction of what they understand about their product. So we're both entering this relationship with our own ignorances. And so much of it is finding clients who are willing to learn about design and being a designer who is willing to learn from the client. And I think that it has had a really great impact on my relationships with my clients. Sometimes things don't work out. That's fine. Not everyone's going to get along with everyone. But when you find that sweet spot of, you know, everyone's willing to admit to their ignorances and failings and let the other side of the relationship compliment them, like, man, it's really good. What are some ways that you start to set up that kind of educational relationship with the client. I mean, obviously you're not going to put them through like design 101 class of any, of some kind, but, or, or are you? Oh, you don't think I will? Uh, no, I, <laughs> <laughs> first, first day of, after that contract signed, I send them a quiz. Um, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Were you listening on our first phone call? Were you listening? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you should have been taking notes the whole time. Pop yeah. quiz. Um, I, I think that uh, a lot of it is I'm very forward with clients before we start working together and saying there are many ways to make design. This is how I do it. Uh, and it changes from project to project. But generally, every project starts with sketches. And I will, you know, listen, I don't like doing mood boards because it can sell an idea that's already been sold, I think which is a dangerous thing to start a, a, a job with. So start with sketches and from sketches, we start making like rough, you know, 
computer files, for lack of a better term, whether that's Illustrator files or whatever. And from there, um, tighten those up until we get to the final thing. But the most important part of my process is starting with sketches because you iterate super fast because you're not worrying about all the things. You're not worrying about things aligning. You're not worried about color choices. It removes a lot of worries from that initial process where you're just trying to find something that's cool and good and works. And from then, you know, if they have an issue with something, uh, with the sketch, you know, they say, I don't think that the relationship between these two objects is very good. You know, then that's not where I go. Well, well, I've been doing this for 10 years and you haven't, so it'll be fine. Like, don't worry. It'll be fine. That's where I go. Okay. Well, that's, you know, that's a failing of a sketch. Sketch has its downsides sketching because it's not perfect. And saying, well, you know, if that relationship isn't working for you, um, you know, maybe we need to try something different. Maybe it's these two things because, you know, I really should have come up with a specific example for this. This analogy is going to go off rails because <laughs> I have nothing tangible to hold on to. And I've now dug myself into a terrible hole. <laughs> um, but I, I think a lot of it is just not being defensive and, hearing feedback and understanding where that feedback is coming from. Um, and, and, you know, and that's tough. It is, it is tough. It can be. And I think a lot of it is, you know, the client wants to make something great. You want to make something great. Now where that differs maybe is first of all, they have to live with this thing. If I'm making a, a you know, a logo for them, I'm done with it in two months they're hanging out with that thing for years, hopefully. Um, and so they have a lot of like potential time invested in this work. And so when they get really nitpicky again, who can blame them? Of course they get nitpicky. Yeah. I get nitpicky as hell. If I were them, like it's, <laughs> yeah. it's like almost their job to be a pain in the ass because they have to live with it. So, you know, I think a lot of it is just not getting defensive, understanding that, I want something that looks good and hopefully works well. But, you know, sometimes those, sometimes it's hard to figure out which one you want more, I guess. Um, and, you know, I've had projects in where I wasn't really happy with the end result, but the client loved it. And who am I to say that it was wrong? Like, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. like, it might not have achieved my goals, but they loved it and they're the client. Yeah. And so, you know, I guess job well done for me, even if it doesn't feel like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Even if it feels like this isn't going to do well on uh, dribble or. Vimeo. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the thing is like worrying about stuff like that. Dribble isn't the client. I don't, I don't give a shit if some guy in Siberia <laughs> loves this thing. Like that thing occupied five seconds of their day while they looked at it on an endless board of other design work. And you know, it, the client's living with it for a long time. So they better like it. And that matters more than whether I like it or not. I think ideally you come to, you know, where everyone likes it. Um, but, you know, sometimes that's just not doable. So 
you, you spent some time at Google and, and I, I realized, you know, between Interlink and Google, you know, you, you moved to Minneapolis and then back to California and now you're, you're back in Minneapolis. Yep. Um, so why are you in Minneapolis? I guess is the best, I can't, I can't think of a better way to ask that question. <laughs> why Minneapolis? Well, a lot of, so I think back to when Megs and I were living in LA and we decided to move to Minneapolis from a list of cities. You know, what brought us here, uh, was at the time, great design community up here, still the great design community. And uh, Megs went to school for music education. So good education system up here. We moved here and Megs was like, I am so tired of getting certified for teaching in every state that we moved to um, that, you know, I'm out. <laughs> kind of, or I think she actually went through the whole certification process. And then we moved back to California to for me to work at Google. Oh no. <laughs> poor Megs. That poor woman. Should, yeah. Boy. Uh, <laughs> I'm lucky that she's so tolerant. Uh, good education system, less people, you know, population like 300,000. So it's the size where you can still run into people at the grocery store, like a small town, but you get all of the city amenities. Like, like we have the most parks uh, per capita of any city in the country. Um, really? Yeah. Like we have a great park system. There's bike trails everywhere, bike lanes out the wazoo. Um, and also in California, when it was like 55 degrees and Christmas, I didn't feel right. We're both from Kentucky, uh, which doesn't get super cold, but it gets cold when it's Christmas because it should. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and so we wanted a place that had seasons again. And Minneapolis has very extreme seasons, um, but seasons. Uh, and so I think those are all the things that kind of brought us here. Um, and a relatively low cost of living, which is important when you work for yourself. <laughs> well, no, I, I love that. And I ask that because I love Minneapolis. Um, my whole extended families from, you know, Minnesota, Wisconsin area and come up for the Vikings games and beautiful new stadium, all, all that wonderful stuff. But yeah, there's so many great designers there as well. Um, and, and great studios. Yeah. And a good community. Like, I think that it's more than just competent people. Like it's because LA has a lot of great people in it too, but LA's, I don't know the design community, someone, I got to be real careful here. Someone in LA is going to listen to this and be like, this guy's an asshole. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Which, you know, it's fine. But I feel like LA's was much more competitive. Like in, in Minneapolis, there's a sense that, you know, what's that? A rising tide lifts all boats. Um, and so people are willing to help each other out. People are willing to shoot work to other people. Like, and it's not as competitive as, you know, San Francisco or LA. Uh, maybe it's just a California thing. I don't know. Um, but that, and that's what I really love about it here. Um, people are more interested in designers are more interested in other designers as people than they are as designers. If that makes sense. Yeah. Which I like. So let's talk a little bit about, um, starting, starting Lunar Saloon. So you, you moved back to Minneapolis after, um, 
you know, leaving Google and you know, some some kind of in between stuff. Um, started freelancing. What was your kind of thought process behind, like, you know, am I am I just going to be, um, you know, Alex Grendling freelancing, or am, am I going to start a studio? You know, come up with a name um, and a brand around that. So, yeah, walk me through the kind of that that thought process. I've been freelancing for a while, and I felt like I was starting to. I'll preface all of this with we're about a year and a half into Lunar Saloon. So we're still like in what I would consider baby stages. So not a whole lot has changed since before Lunar Saloon, but I also haven't expected it to, I guess. Um, but But the idea was, okay, everyone's coming to Alex Grinling to make work. And the amount of work and the kind of work, um, that I get is limited by that. Um, whereas if we open a studio, even if the studio is still just, you know, Megs and I, if we open a studio, then we have a name associated with us. There's no one person in charge even anymore, even though like I'm still doing all the design work. The idea is that you hire Lunar Saloon and you don't know how big that is. Uh, it's just me, but I have a big network of other creative people um, to work with. And I can call up and bring on projects as I need them to. Um, And so the idea is that Lunar Saloon can grow or shrink as, as much as it needs to via bringing other freelancers on board projects. Now that hasn't happened yet, (laughs) Um, (laughs) but it has been really nice to have, have a name to like live behind that isn't my own and create an identity for that. Meg's named it. Um, it's, I mean, not biased at all here, but it's a pretty good name. Um, <laughs> and she gave me hell because when she said it, like, you know, a couple of years ago, I was like, that's a great name. She said, Oh really? Cause I pitched that name to you like three years ago and you did not like it. <laughs> um, so, Meg's named it and it really comes out of Meg's and I both love um, Westerns and sci-fi movies. And so Lunar Saloon is kind of like the perfect marriage of those two things. And, you know, then we, we view it from like, you know, we own a bar on the moon and uh, that that's, that's our thing. Did you tweet a little while ago that someone asked like when Lunar or if they could play a show at Lunar Saloon or something like that? Yes. Someone. So I, this happens relatively often is that I get calls from weird numbers, really, most of which I don't answer because they're weird numbers. Um, but sometimes I answer them and it's almost always someone who thinks that lunar saloon is a bar or a restaurant. <laughs> and there's like this like moment That's amazing. Of, of they're like, Hey, is this Lunar Saloon? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, hi, I'm, I like represent like, you know, entertainment management for such and such. Um, <laughs> have you heard of us? Do you know what we are? And that's always where I'm like, no, but do you know who we are? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, it's always funny to hear a business that is not your business described back to you. And you go, oh no, we, yeah. we like do design stuff and everything. And um, sometimes I think they're, they think that I'm just trying to get rid of them and they keep going and I'm really? like, no, really, <laughs> like, this is, I, <laughs> we are not what you think we are. How do they arrive at that? Like I'm looking at your website and just trying to imagine like 
thinking that you are a like bar or restaurant. And I'm just like, this is a weird bar or restaurant. Yeah. Like, so I think that they don't they don't go to the website and. There, I feel like there is some weird directory of restaurants somewhere, and Lunar Saloon, <laughs> yeah, Lunar Saloon it. got auto added by like a bot at some point, and this has led to you know months and months of phone calls that mistakenly think we're a bar. <laughs> Which, that's that's you know, incredible. There are worse mistakes that could be made. That's it's a pretty funny one <laughs> in the long run. Yeah. So besides the dream of, you know, not being, you know, mistaken for a restaurant, <laughs> um, what, 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 are, what are your kind of, of hopes and dreams for the future of, of Lunar Saloon? I think that ideally we get to a point where we have enough products in our store that we do not rely on client work as much as we do now. Um, I think that is a distant dream. Uh, and the thing that with products is, we're just in our house. So like our storage is limited um, as far as, you know, like when we get 5,000 decks of playing cards, we have to go, where do we put the, <laughs> what do we do with these? <laughs> um, and so there's a lot of overhead that comes with physical products. So we're trying to figure that out. We're trying to figure out, you know, do we make smaller products? Do we make bigger products that are more expensive? You know, we partner with Neutral Ground, um, which is a, I don't know, a wood shop, for, for lack of a better term, in um, Louisiana. And we work with them to make like really ornate laser engraved maps of video game worlds. So Link to the Past, Super Mario World, stuff like that. Does Lunar Saloon partner with, you know, more creative studios to make products? Like we're kind of in the process of figuring that out. But to answer your question, the dream is a lot of products, a little client work. And I think, you know, Megs is not here. I cannot speak for Megs, but I feel like I am already living the dream to a certain degree. And I have to keep reminding myself with this of this because as a creative person, I'm never satisfied. <laughs> and I sometimes have to take a look. I, I think something I had a revelation a few weeks ago where I thought, what would 10 years ago Alex think of Alex right now? And looking at it, and it's like, you're making E3 booth for IGN. Like, 10 years ago, Alex is on IGN all the time, never even once thought about working with IGN. And so a lot of it is like maintaining perspective of my work and going, this is pretty good. This is like pretty fucking good, honestly. And like... And so I'm kind of living the dream and then I'm working with a lot of video game clients and like making covers for Game Informer. Like, that's a cool thing. And I think that I just have to put aside, you know, that little voice that's like, you need more, you need more. What you have isn't enough. And to look at what I have in my body of work and say, no, this is pretty good. That's all right. That's good. There can always be more but I'm happy with where I'm at. Yeah, man, that's so good. That's such a good reminder. It's something that like, I resonate with that so much. That's something I've been thinking about a ton as well. Cause it's like, we, we, it's in my nature. I think it's in our nature, nature as, you know, creative professionals just to push. Like we, we want to get better. We want to work on bigger things all the time. And then like you hit that level and then you're just looking at like other people who are on the next level. And it's just like five years ago, me would just have killed to be at, 
where I'm at right now. Yeah, I mean, like, you guys, you all did that spot for Castle Rock. Yeah, dude. That was, like, fucking amazing to me. Like, as as a lifelong Stephen King fan and a big J.J. Abrams fan and, like, what Bad Robot does, that blew my mind. And there was some part of me in the back that's like, this is amazing, and I'm sure that all those IV animation guys are really happy about this, but are also like, okay, what's next? Because I'm like that. And yeah, but man, you should just take you should just take some time, Zach, and just bask <laughs> in what you all did for that. Because that was so awesome and really Thanks, exciting. Man. But I forget about that right. every single day. Totally. Like I and and I'm just like, man, like our portfolio, we could be yes. so much better. Yeah. Like it's a terrible cycle, but we, we just need to all sit back and be like, look at this. Look what we're yeah. doing. Like, we're making a living, like, making cool stuff. And that's not to say that there aren't problems. Like, yeah. there are big problems in our industry. Right now, there is, like, a constant race to the bottom, mm-hmm. you know, to charge less for more. And there are problems, but I, I think that, you know, especially in a world with so many problems ranks pretty low on the totem pole because the reason that i like had this this moment of self-reflection a few weeks ago is because i realized february 14th was my first day at interlink 10 years ago and so i was thinking about the past 10 years and going you made movie posters like you worked at google you work with all these video game companies now you make covers for the magazines that you read religiously as a kid like and just like taking a moment, being proud of that. Like, I think that there's too much, there's too much of a tendency to like really revel in that inferiority complex that we all have. And I think that sometimes it's okay to just be proud of your work and say, this was good. I'm glad that this happened. Okay. What's next? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And I think it's like something we do for other people all the time. Like we're proud of our friends and our peers you know, and sometimes that even spills over into jealousy, but it's just like, just you animalators listener, just like take a moment <laughs> and, and be proud of yourself. I'm proud yeah. of you. Like yeah. you're, you're doing it. Like this stuff that we're doing is not easy and, and is, and can be very difficult. So just take a moment. Yeah. 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 It's good. It's a good, it's a good reminder, but you know, that said, I don't think I have any client work right now, so I'm ready for what's <laughs> next. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. So we're, we're coming close to the end of our, end of our time here, but I did want to talk a little bit about, um, it's a bit of a subject change about Twitch. You've been doing a lot of, of Twitch live streaming and I believe you just made, I'm, I'm very new to, to Twitch culture, a partner. No, not partner. Um, Twitch culture, applying the word, word culture so closely <laughs> to Twitch might be overly generous. Elevating it. But... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I just made partner at Twitch, um, which means that people can subscribe to the channel and like subscriptions are, you know, they have like different tiers, but it starts at like four 99 a month. And that's revenue that I share with Twitch and Twitch. Like I started doing it. This is like hard to believe, like, like almost two years ago, I think. And I think mostly out of, you know, we're talking about, teaching at MCAD and turning client relationships into, you know, learning relationships and 
Um, and I think Twitch is, you know, an extension of that, uh, in that for those that don't know before I deep dive, um, Twitch is a, a site that has been predominantly used for people streaming games that they play. So you can tune in and watch people play games. You can watch professional gamers play pro games. Um, and they have a creative section now. And the creative section is for people, you know, musicians, um, artists, designers, um, you know, you, you name it. Uh, if, if you can set a camera up to watch you do it, then, <laughs> uh, then people it are doing it. Yeah. And so what I do is I uh, stream a few times a week and uh, make uh, stuff an illustrator and Photoshop. You even streamed making some Bouncy Smash characters. I did stream making some yeah. Bouncy Smash characters. Um, I've also streamed... I streamed. I watched that, by the way. How, how did it feel to have a, a client watching, um, <laughs> I, literally I think, looking over your shoulder? <laughs> so, I think that it's okay with me, because I've gotten okay with people, like so many other people, looking over my shoulder while I work at this point, um, looking directly at my screen... Um, that has taught me to be okay with like things looking like garbage for 75% of the time and like not being insecure about that, but really embracing that as part of the process and showing students who watch, who just see the final thing. Like, no, my stuff looks like crap, just like yours does for a long time. So I think it kind of helps to show them that. And maybe more importantly, show them the last 25% that I do that makes it not look like crap. Now, we'll put the um, asterisk on this that I'm sure people will say that even my finished stuff looks like crap. And that is fine. <laughs> um, but so maybe I should not, not frame it as good or bad work, but successful or unsuccessful. And it's successful for me. So... I think that streaming has just been, you know, an extension of like design education and showing people how this works. You know, some clients like working with you all, you were down with me streaming bouncy smash characters, which was great. Um, IGN has let me stream the past two years of their E3 booth, which it's like, you know, here's how you make 1200 square feet of illustration. Everybody, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, and it's been great kind of taking people along on those um, client projects and my personal work as well. Um, the hard thing is finding the time because I don't want people to know everything I'm making all the time, you know, and so it's hard finding like, okay, I'm going to stream today. What do I even make? Like, what do I make? Because I can't show them this thing. And so it, it's been actually pretty good and and making me come up with things quickly and not holding on to things and getting really precious with them and saying, no, it's not ready for people to see and just going, ah, fuck it. We're doing it. <laughs> We're doing it live. Uh, we'll do it live. So yeah, That's it's awesome. been good. Um, all right. Well, so we try to end each episode with the same few questions. Uh, the first one is who is your dream client? Um, any, anyone, anyone in particular? I, I have given this so much thought, Zach. <laughs> I have given this an excruciating amount of thought. Okay, so I'll, I'll start with an answer. My answer is Valve. 
um, Ooh, because man. I admire that I play a lot of Dota 2. Um, I love Half-Life as much as anyone does. Team Fortress 2's art and character design is mm, like chef kissing fingers emotes. <laughs> like, so good. But what I would love to work with them on is branding fake corporations and characters within their games. Like the idea of making design work that has fake goals for a fake world is really interesting to me. Um, yeah, yeah. So this kind of led me to think like, maybe I don't have a dream client. Maybe I have a dream project and, you know, valve and like blizzard are two, you know, big players that I would love to work with on something like that. All right. Next question. Favorite animated film. Oh God. Am I allowed to give more than one? Do I, I mean, have to? You're there are very really... hard and fast rules. And if, if you do no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Give them to me, man. It's a three way tie. All right. This is a ridiculous list and it's going to be dumb to say out loud, but Akira. <laughs> All right. Princess and the frog. Disney's Princess nice. and the Frog. I love it so much. I love like having seen like a Southern Disney film um, and Roger Rabbit, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is breaking the rules a little bit, but I that is a highly animated piece of work and oh, it's so good. I love it. I put it on all the time while I'm working. Really? Um, yeah, I notice new things like every time I watch. Like there's so many details in that and i've watched it so many times but something still surprises me every time and like that's what i want my work to be is who framed roger rabbit all right next question what do the people you love think that you do for a living uh well i roped megs into this whole mess with me yeah, yeah so she's got it she's, got, she's it got it um my dad ran his own designs has run his own design studio for like 40 years so he's got it I would say the less design inclined people logos and stuff, probably <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I think. and stuff is like a pretty like nebulous concept. Like what is stuff? <laughs> but I don't even think they really know what logos are either. So <laughs> I think that they just, they've heard the word logo a lot. Yeah, so yeah. they say a lot of logos and stuff. And yeah, yeah so I, I think, and you know, that's pretty good though. It's not bad. It's probably a better understanding of my job than I have of their job. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. who am I to throw rocks? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last question. What animal did you choose for your animal later and why? I have not chosen one and I feel okay about this because you interviewed someone else whose name escapes me that also hadn't made a choice. That's true. But happens all the time. I, so I guess I would have a question for you and that is do dinosaurs count? Oh, yeah. Okay, they so definitely I'll definitely count. do a dinosaur. Um, oh, yeah. I don't know what kind of dinosaur. Um, someone asked me what my favorite was a while back, and I can't. Like, stegosaurs are pretty cool. Well, I don't know. Do they have feathers now? Like, I don't even know what's going on with the dinosaurs. So, okay, so I'm all about science and everything, but yeah. to hell with dinosaurs having feathers. <laughs> Jurassic Park dinosaurs for life, I will... I, this is the hill that I die on. Okay. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if stegosaurs, I guess my favorite dinosaur now is whichever one doesn't have feathers. Doesn't have feathers. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Me too. Well, Alex, thank you so much for giving us your time and coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun.
Animalators is created by the team at IV, recorded in the Weld Nashville studio, and produced by Chad Michael Snavely. To keep up with the work we're doing at IV, visit iv.studio or follow us on Twitter at Identity Visuals. You can also follow Animalators on Twitter at Animalators to keep up with all of the new episodes. And be sure to check out animalators.com to see every animation from all of our guests. To find out more about Alex and Lunar Saloon, head to lunarsaloon.com or follow Alex on Twitter at Alex Grendling. Our theme music is composed by Cody Fry. You can check out more of his music at codyfry.com. And if you like this podcast, please subscribe and tell your friends. You can leave us a review on iTunes and that helps more people find this show. Well, that's it for today's episode. Be sure and join us next time for another episode of Animalators. Curious conversations from the world of animation.